talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and today we are joined by someone that I don't know very much about and that always excites me the most compared to guests that I've had on the podcast where I might know quite a bit about them because maybe they're a public figure or maybe they're just someone that I've personally known for years. But to have someone that you meet by, I guess, by accident, and then you learn just maybe one little fact about them, and then it just kind of bites you a little bit. You're like, oh, I want to know more about that person. I want to know their story. And uh, I am pleased to welcome DeMarco Hampton of A Copious Lifestyle to the podcast. Welcome, DeMarco. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back here. I think, was was it summertime when we first met? That It was. It was. And now it's it's November. Mm -hmm. We're recording this on November 26th. Um, I'm pretty sure by the time this episode is released, it's going to be December. So, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's amazing how quickly time passes on. Yes, yes. So, um, we met through a mutual friend, Jeff Davis. He's from Fly Above It. That's what people know him by. Another really great guy as well. So I was really glad that he linked us up together. And both of you came over that day back in the summertime. I can't remember exactly what day it was, but regardless, we just, we sat here in this studio. We didn't do any recording or anything like that, but we just sat and we talked and it was just, we had a great conversation uh, between the three of us. And we agreed that we wanted to make sure to sit down again and yeah. and get into your story. So if I remember correctly, you are originally from the south side of Chicago, DeMarco? Yes, uh, Argyle Gardens, yeah. Okay, so what year were you born? Uh, 78, 1978. Okay. Yeah, I'm 44. Okay, so yeah. what's your family's history? How did they, have they been, had they been in Chicago for a long time or? Yes, actually my entire family from Chicago, most of them from the south, south, that south side area. We was in a projects, uh, Argyle Guards. My mother lived there and my grandmother lived there. I think I was around 10 when we moved to Kankakee. Yeah. You said Argyle? Argyle Guards. It's on 131st. Okay. And, yeah, in Chicago. It's the last projects in Chicago, really the last part of uh, Chicago before you get to the suburbs. Okay. And then 10 years old, you found your way to Kankakee? Well, my mother thought that moving to Kankakee would be a better place for us to live. And that would have been, what, in the 80s or 90s? Yes, definitely in the 80s. (laughs) Okay. You're right. You were born in 78. So did you have family here already? Did she know some Um, people that lived? My godmother lived here. Okay. She she lived here. She moved from uh, Chicago maybe uh, three or four years prior to us coming here. What do you remember from your childhood growing up on the south side of Chicago? What was life like for you there with you and your family before coming to Kankakee? For some reason, I always thought my auntie was rich. Because when we was living, where we was living at, it was a little different. It was, you know, we were struggling a lot more. And they had some stuff. So every time my birthday come around, uh, any type of holiday or any type of thought of me needing something, I asked them for something, and they always came through for me. So I thought they was rich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's funny. It is. I, I always assumed the same thing when I was a kid, that my parents were, <laughs> were rich. Yeah. My, you know, your your grandparents and, and so on and so forth. You think, oh, they've got all the money, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but one thing for sure, I knew we was poor. That's one thing I knew. 
Well, you you say the projects, and and what do you mean by the projects? To explain to someone that doesn't understand what exactly that is, on a, on a surface, it's an area where where uh, it's cheap to live, and you know that's what more a, a lot of people in the inner city uh, would go to if they can't afford to live nowhere else or outside of the city. So it's like Section Eight. Yeah, well, kind of not necessarily Section Eight, but it can be involved in that, but. It's more so just low income income housing. Okay, and so what are besides besides thinking your your auntie and your your grandmother were rich? What other things you remember from living and and growing up for, you know, the first ten years on the South Side? I remember doing. Uh, we we was a part of the uh, program. I, I forgot the name of it. We would go uh, and uh, flip, do flips. We would do backflips. We would play sports, play video games, tumble. And uh, we would take that same stuff out of the thing and we would flip outside. I remember one time we was flipping off the church steps. And my brother uh, flipped, my oldest brother flipped off the uh, church steps and almost broke his neck. Oh, man. And I think that's the time we stopped doing that. <laughs> Probably. But we was always athletic and doing flips and stuff. So then I guess fast forwarding to when you moved to Kankakee, what, was it a big change for you and your family? Did your money go a little farther? What happened 10 years old moving to Kankakee? What was that? Was that a good change for you? I thought it was. You know, I really didn't know at that age, but I thought it was. But when, when we got there, you know, I think that's the age I fell in love with football. My oldest brother fell in love with football and my youngest brother. We first played for Al Zarelli, but financially, it was still bad. And I believe a lot of times it'd be our own fault we in our position. And I believe my parents were the reason we was in that position. We all got to take a responsibility for our actions. And, and some of it was due to drugs. Some of it due to lack of education, but that's what it was. So your, what were your parents like then? Your... Um, my mother and my father, they were married. My father, he went to jail when I was around six. I seen the police come handcuff him, take him to jail. And what was he arrested for? I think a robbery. I'm not sure, but a robbery, I, I, I believe. So I'm assuming when you moved to Kankakee, was he still in prison? Yeah. He was still in prison. So it was just your mom raising um, you and how many siblings? Maybe a year after uh, my father was in prison or in jail, my mother uh, met another guy, you know. But to talk about that, they all had the same characteristics. He was the same type of guy. So the condition that we was in, it, it remained the same. So what was your mother like? Oh, my mother, she was the sweetest woman ever. And, and it's sad because I got a lot of her uh, characteristics. She would give anything to anybody. She would even give more than she had. She used to allow people to move in with her. They wouldn't have the half of the rent. She wouldn't even say nothing, even though she was in a position, a little bad position herself. And, you know, she always gave, she gave, she gave. So, you know, and, and that probably played a, a part in it as well, because I see it in myself that giving too much or you don't put yourself first, then it can be. Because I always give too much, and that's what I always was held back from really uh, doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, I think she had that problem as well. Yeah, you can't cut yourself short. You can give, but it's you don't want to cross that line. It's so easy to cross that line and give everything that you have, even though you're cutting your slice of the pie that you're supposed to eat too in order to survive. So I, I definitely get where you're going with that. Before you go further, yeah. this is crazy. Um, <laughs> my mother, I know she was like that. It's like I inherited that. And to me, it seems like... Well, you, you watched it growing up, right? I mean... I watched it growing up and didn't like it. It was okay until the point it wasn't. But later on in my life, I started to realize I'm the same weight and probably a little worse. You know, and it's like, how can I break this habit? And I think something that you inherit is a little harder to change opposed to something that you'd have picked up along the way. So I just wanted to put that out there. Sure, yeah. So then your your father, what was he like? 
What are your memories of your father? Honestly, my fondest memory of my father, not fondest, my only memory of my father was he had a belt tied around his arm, shooting heroin in his arm. And that's, I, I'm choking up because I really don't want to say it, but that's the real. That's the only That's the, the only memory that I really have of him with a belt tied around his arm, shooting a syringe needle in his veins. Yeah. And you would you would just walk into the room and um, you would be doing that? I remember one time, because I wanted M&Ms that was on the table, I walked in the room. I seen him and his friends, and I seen the M&M. So that's that's that memory. So did you ever see him again after he was I hauled saw, away? I saw him one time. I, I got an uncle named Edwin, his brother. He really was like my father for a long time. He would do the things. He actually made me understand what a father was like. I don't know, because my father was going through whatever he was going through. I didn't understand it then, but my uncle stepped up and helped out. So, Do you remember when your dad was being hauled away? How, oh. how, how did your mom explain that to you? Did she just say, Daddy's going away for a little while? Like how? I can't remember exactly what uh, my mother was saying, but I remember she going to the door. She said, I think it's the police. That's what I, all I remember. I remember him running back in the room, and that's all I remember. And and I know for a long time I didn't see him. I remember going to visit him in Cook County Jail. And as we talk about my story later, I'm going to reveal something that was the most craziest thing to remember in the way I remembered it. That was the last time I seen him after that day. And when I saw him again, my uncle the uncle that I mentioned, he brought him down there to brought him down here to Kankakee to see us, and um, we. I was so excited. I was so excited, and I think my uncle recorded it. It was like I was trying to talk to him, trying to get him to know who I am, and it, we was trying to do so much at one time. And then after that, I don't know how long after that, but I got a call was saying my father had OD. So not too long. When when he came back, the last time you saw him and you were living in Kankakee, how old were you at that time? Were you a teenager by then? I think I was 12. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh 12. not quite Close. a teenager. Yeah. Okay. And then it wasn't long after that time when you were 12 that he had passed away. A year later, I believe. Gosh. I can only imagine. I, I can't imagine what that must feel like. So th that's a lot going on, moving to Kankakee and those things happening. How do things go on from there when you move to Kankakee, 10 years old, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, your father dies? What? How does that impact you at that moment? How is that shaping you? Before that, you know what really shaped me? Poverty. Poverty in that as well. But my brothers, my oldest brother... We both started playing football at the same time. I didn't really focus on football as much, but I was really good. He went on to be real good. Then my younger brother come behind him, and he was, it was like he had, he was the hybrid. He had my ability and my older brother ability, and he was just, he was just great. But we wanted to be, uh, our dreams was being football players. We wanted to be football players, and we worked towards that, but I was, so it, I don't know if I was that materialistic or that conscious, but my condition bothered me, you know, growing up. Being in yeah. living in poverty because yeah. uh, your mom, she's a single mom or, or maybe she has a new partner in her life by now, but she's still struggling, I would imagine, paying the bills, right? When you got a man in the house that's anchoring a woman, that's going to hold her down. So she got three kids, and you pulling her down, it's just going to bring all y'all further down. So that was that. So the new person she brought into her life was... was They all had similar characteristics. I don't know if she consciously did that, but I, later on in my life, I realized that. They all had similar characteristics. Was her father like that? I don't think my grandfather was. My grandmother, she was so strong. Her household was, you know, was intact. So 
I don't know where she picked it up from. Uh, or a lot of times, men, a lot of us, our men destroy our women. Well, what do you remember, for for example wise? Do you remember any direct examples of when you were growing up with your men that your mother had in my, her life? My mother didn't have many men in her life. Only my father, when he passed away. No, when he uh, went to jail, she had another uh, boyfriend a year later, maybe. Could have been a little longer. Timing is a little off. So all in my entire life, I only knew three men. You know, my father and my two other stepfathers. The men, they had the same characteristics. So, you know, it's going to, that behavior going to perpetuate. It ain't nobody, nobody's there helping each other. So it's not going to get better if that's the condition. So you're starting to get into football as a teenager, right? As a teenager, I was in at fo- in football early in 85. I, I, I wanted to be, I, we fell in love with football. We fell in love with the Bears. As I got into uh, 13, well, when I was 11, I was bad. I was My condition played a role in my behavior and my situation at home. So my what was brother, your behavior? My brothers, they stayed playing football, and, and they were really good at it. My behavior, I, I was stealing a lot. I was taking stuff, bikes, whatever it was. I, I just wanted things that I didn't have. And um, I stopped stealing at 15. I don't think I stole anything from 15 further. But I picked up a new habit. I started selling drugs. And that's why I say um, my condition played a major role on, on a lot of things I did. You know, How did the opportunity for selling drugs get presented to you? How did you get into that? I found, I found some. I found them. Some drug dealers had uh, was running from the police. It was me and my friend. I found, I found them laying down. Actually, we was trying to help them find it. <laughs> and I stepped on it. And I'm like, okay, this maybe can change my situation. And it was a, a few bags. Me and my friend shared them. And, you know, it was scary. It was a scary thing to uh, make that next step. But I knew I didn't want to steal anymore because I wasn't never a bad person. I didn't like to steal. So when I started to realize what I was doing, well, I, I let it go. I mean, but you saw, obviously, with the opportunity to sell drugs, you're like, oh, well, here's an opportunity for me to make some money versus when you're stealing things, you're not necessarily turning around to sell them, right? You're stealing things for yourself well, most of the time, right? Me, yeah, well, yeah. I was stealing packs of uh, cartons of cigarettes, selling them. Me and my friends, we would steal whatever it was that would help us, help our situation. But, you know, um, it's crazy. It's, you know, you go from one thing, but nobody want to be labeled a thief. I would rather be labeled then. I would rather be, well, thief or drug dealer the same, but I wouldn't want to be labeled as a thief. Nobody wanted to be labeled as a thief. And a drug dealer, I didn't want to be labeled as that, but I grew into that because the money was fast and um, my mother hated it. So your mom knew that you were doing this. How did she find out? She come into the room one day. I had like a a plate. I think I was 15. I had a plate. It had maybe an eight ball on it, probably less than that. And she seen a plate and a a safety pin and the drugs. She thought I was using it. And uh, I'm like, no, no, I'm not using it. I'm selling it. But my old, my brother used to always say this. uh, They used to say, always question my mother about our condition. Why has we got this? Why we don't have that? Why is this? Why is that? So I think she knew. And it was sad as I when I grew up and I realized, like, it's like she had to accept it because she couldn't do nothing about it. She didn't try to fight you on it. She, she... did, but she understood that she couldn't do nothing about it because she can't financially support us. So, you know, age 15, you start selling drugs. And how does that progress? And, and how long did you do that for? You know, they say uh, drugs numb your brain more than one way. The way a drug addict was addicted to the drugs, I was addicted to them as well. The rush that you get from the transaction. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of the uh, situations they have now where they're going to set you, everybody telling and all that. It was a lot easier. It was doing, it was like towards the end of the crack era. We gravitated towards that and... I was able to have things that I didn't have before. 
Because I don't recall ever having a phone where we could talk to our girlfriends over the phone. Because this would have been what, the early 90s? Uh, early 90s, from, okay. from the 80s to, the, uh, to 93, when I, st- I started selling drugs in 93. Okay. Before then, it was bad. It was, you know, uh, every house we lived in, the heat was off or the electricity was off. We got running stuff going to the neighbors, bringing water, you know, all of that. So that's how it was. How can a kid really think or function properly when this is his condition? Especially an inquisitive child, a curious child, conscious child, an ambitious child. That's, that was who I was. I just couldn't understand why I don't have what my friends have. So I'm curious. I I know like the the first time you started selling drugs, it was just because they just plopped literally like right down well, in front it was of you. A but but then after that, like where do you get these drugs, and how do you know where to get them? I well, everybody watch movies. You know how to get drugs. That's it's right there. Everything you want is right there, bad for you. But the thing about the drugs is. It destroys everybody that deal with it, the user and the seller. But you don't know that then. You don't know as a a youngster. All you want to do is change your situation and your family situation. That's the thing. So the drugs are everywhere. So then are you building your drug dealing game, your drug dealing sales? Are are you getting into bigger and bigger sales or having more customers? How How does that work and how does that escalate? Well, I really don't want to touch too much on that because that ain't even the the drugs. Everybody know how the drugs go. My thing about it is what I did, I just wanted to never go back to struggling again. I never wanted to struggle again. You know, I wasn't the type of guy that wanted to steal no more. I, I wasn't the type of guy that's going out there and try to rob you or, or trick you out of anything. But, you know, in my mind, I was justifying what I was doing. I thought it was right because, hey, who— and I learned later, the, the uh, government could change whether uh, this is legal or illegal, and then it'll be right, just like they did weed. But my moral dilemma was I hated the way it treated people. So only did it because I had to at that time. I thought that's all I had to do. But, you know, I wanted more. So I, I saved my money. I did, I, I did a little better than a lot of uh, the other guys around, I guess, because I was a lot hungrier. So when did that end for you then? What comes next? When when uh, just like an addict got a detox, it take years, especially when I had no work experience. I had no work ethic. I had no education. So even if I wanted to do anything different, inadvertently, I would go back to it because what else do I know? Even after that, when I started realizing I had to learn something, I realized I needed my education. That's when things started changing. But still, I relapsed, not using I relapsed selling. And the reason it was a relapse is because I gave everything away again. So and it, it was crazy. And, you know, I felt like, man, I, it just goes deep. It goes deep. But So when did you finally, I guess, hit rock bottom and realize, okay, I am officially done with this? And And this is the saddest thing. 15 to, I think I was 42. I'm going to stop there on that because it can get, we going to get deeper and I'm going to explain later how I end up relapsing. Okay. And, but, and then when I stop, but it, I can answer that at 42, at 42 and a half, maybe. That's a long time. Yeah. That's a, that's almost, is that happen? Yeah, I guess it is half. Not half. most, not most people dying in their addiction, whether it's the drugs, the using them or mm-hmm. the selling them. Yeah. So where does, where does copious lifestyle come into play then? Okay. I'm going to give a little backstory. You know, through all the drug dealing situations, I ended up going to a juvenile in 94. While I was in juvenile, my mother was killed. My mother was shot three times in the back of the head and one in the shoulder, I believe. And um, Do you know why? Yeah, uh, she was trying to help a woman that was getting uh, beat up by her boyfriend. The woman didn't want help. And then, you know, later on in life, I thought about that. My mother really gave to the point she gave her life. 
And I be thinking about, man, I cannot do that. It won't be the same way, or I, I don't know. But my mother was killed in uh, 95. Did that happen in Kankakee? It did. So this happens while you're away. Yeah, I was away for five months. I had to see my mother uh, shackled up. It was five months. It felt like a million years. I get out. I moved to Maywood. I moved to Maywood with my auntie and my uncle. They provided me with a whole better life, me and my little brother. My oldest brother, he stayed in Kankakee. But we was provided with everything. He showed me how. He, he, made, he the reason I fell in love with real estate. We would work for him. He he would take us to he took us to the Million Man March. We we flew in a plane. We went to uh to Washington D.C. twice, I believe. Wow. We went to Texas. We was just doing stuff. So, so very we, generous. Yeah, Definitely different lifestyle than what a, you were used a, to. Yes, it, it was a totally different lifestyle. But we was causing my auntie and uh, grandma so much pain because it was like, how can you take? I lived this way for maybe the first. 17 years of my life. It's hard to change that overnight. And they couldn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I just wanted to be free because at 15, I had my own apartment. You know, I had my own money and I was doing my own stuff. And at 17, I got to come live with you. And You got used to providing yeah. for yourself. And to change abruptly like that, not forcefully too. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's not going to happen. You know, it's gonna take some time. And for me, it took a lot of time. We're gonna fast forward 2002. The guy that killed my mother got shot. A close friend of mine did it. He said that I did it. Not my close friend, but the guy. He came to trial, testified on me. And uh, honestly, I would have done it, you know. I was hurting, and this is why I was living, but I didn't do it. These people love my mother close to her as much as I did, and my brothers. So, but anyway. Uh, so you were pinned for shooting him? Yeah. Okay. I did 17 years in prison for something I didn't do. And during that time in prison, all the things that I was telling you about starting to come to my mind. So that was when I started to figure out who am I. I talk about that in my book as well. Book coming out, The Pursuit of Excellence. Yeah. I was, I had to figure out who I was, everything. And when I broke it all the way down, I didn't like what I saw as, as a, I was in my 20s. Actually, I was in my 30s when I got to this point. Um, when I broke it all the way down, I didn't like what I saw. I thought I was something that I wasn't. And I wasn't trying to portray somebody else. It was just, I thought this who I was. And I truly believe that we are not the things we do. And then when I figured out who I was, all the things around me started to make sense. That's how I knew that, hey, these guys had the same characteristics as my mother. That's how I figured out when I was growing up, I was lazy. When I was in school, I didn't study. I didn't do anything in class because I was lazy. I, I started, things started clicking. So, yeah, once you get to know yourself and then, you know, and even still, I, I fast forwarded it all the way to that. To this uh, 17, but now let's go over to 96. In 96, oh. I was incarcerated the first time for something I didn't do. Okay. What, what happened I in 96? I beat the case then. Okay. Uh, the guy that shot my mother. No, actually, this guy didn't even shoot my mother, but he ended up getting shot. And uh, they said that I did it. The person that did it actually went and told the police that he did it. But it, they didn't know that it was me. The actual uh, the, the uh, victims didn't know it was me. They thought it was me, but I ended up beating the case by the grace of God. But I saw so much in the court system because my older brother didn't. He wasn't there. He didn't do it. And he ended up getting uh, 15 years for that crime. And I recall asking the prosecutor after I got out, I mean, after I beat my case, why? When you know he didn't do it. And, and that's another story, which is part of my story. And, you know, he said he was just doing his job. What kind of evidence did they present to be able to? In my case now, all they got is a guy saying I did it. And the evidence then, all they got is uh, the, t the lady and man. I truly believe that they believe that I did it. 
So, but the police, and they knew I didn't do it. The police and the prosecutors, but uh, they said that we try to have the guy that did it come in because he was a juvenile. But that's what it was. And by the grace of God, I beat my case. My older brother had to do the time for it. And so when you were in for 17 years, was that the full sentence or did you it was get pardoned? Or did you just get out on... The guy got shot in the leg. Okay. In the ankle, actually. They gave me 16 years at 85%, seven years at 50%. And um, the seven years was for a gun, which they said was used in the commission of the crime. A gun was never found. And I ended up doing 16 and almost 17, I believe. But, you know, throughout that time, I, it was it was rough. But I became a man inside of that. What do you remember going in? I, obviously, that wasn't the first time you had been to... Well, I guess that was the first real serious time you served, though, right? That was because... the first time I did time. Well, that's actually my second time. But that was the first time I actually have to do time for something I didn't do. Yeah. You know what so, I mean? So, wh- I mean, your, your first day, your... You know, you're walking in. I mean, you must have been full of anger, I imagine. Well, I mean, um, what do you remember from? Well, it's a process to actually getting into Stateville where they bring you or Menard. What I thought was I didn't even really focus on so much of uh, the time because if you focus on doing 17 years, it'll destroy you. I asked myself, that's when I had that moment of clarity. I'm like, man, who are you? What are you? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to go with your life? Like, man, because in my mind, I wasn't going to have to do all these 17 years. And if we could talk about the case just a little bit. Yeah. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> sure. I don't care. It's it's part of my story. I'm, I'm okay yeah. with it. But during trial or after trial, one of the jurors, the next day after the verdict was in, one of the jurors wrote the judge, and I remember it verbatim. This is what he said in the letter. He said, prior to being named to this jury, I decided that if 11 jurors had one opinion and I had another one, I would not be abstinent. I would change my vote to the majority view. I went on and followed through with that decision and gave out the last holdout position. That's how much that's verbatim. I remember that clearly. I was thinking, oh, this finna get me out. This finna get me out. But it didn't It didn't work. And it was clear he had a preconceived notion. Prior to being named to the jury, he already had his decision made up. So that's a violation of my constitutional rights right there. But I wanted to touch bases on that. But it's, yeah. it's just, yeah. That is a fascinating piece to throw into that. So you're doing... The 17 years, what what goes on during that time? I mean, for you, I've, I've always been curious. Do you feel like the the prison system helped you in rehabilitating yourself? The system didn't help me. The system always do. Well, the way the system is designed is doing what it's doing. It's doing what it's designed to do. And it's, it's, it's always, it, you know, when it changes, then the system will help you. But until then, it's going to do what it was designed to do. But I changed me. I, I had to, it was, a, uh, it was a time I told myself, I'm going to war with me. I'm going to war with my flesh. I'm going to war with all my weaknesses, all my insecurities, all my shortcomings, all my fears. I say I'm at war with that, and I'm destroying you. So there was no resources while you were in prison that kind of helped you Oh, yeah, making resources. this new new person. I mean, um, the resources is the books, the access to the books that you can purchase, that you can get from friends, other cellmates uh, or inmates. And, you know, they do have programs in prison that can help you. But, you know, at that time, I don't know how the system's changed now. I mean, I couldn't even get into the college classes I wanted to until I was like three years short, four years short. 
You mean uh, away from being up? Oh yeah, for, yeah. Let me break it down. Yeah. I was I was three years sh- uh, uh, shy of coming home. Home, yeah. And that wow, was that's when... a long time. So you were already in there for ten year, yeah. you know, over ten years, and you can I, finally go to college. Well, I was able to get my GED. You're gonna be able to get your D- GED there. But okay. far as college classes, it's whoever got the shortest amount of time go first. Oh. And I had a lot of it. Okay. <laughs> I had a lot of time. So okay. it took it took a while. Now that makes sense. I didn't realize. You no, know, I wanted worked. I wanted to learn how to cook. I wanted to go to culinary arts. I wanted to be in auto uh automotive, all of those good classes, but I couldn't get them. But what I did was, thanks to a few friends, I was able to get into an industry. It was it's the bakery that was there. After I finished my uh marketing class and my business class. I went to the bakery and um, there it's like you working um, for a dollar an hour, 12 hours a day. It's really, really hot always, even in this winter. <laughs> so, I yeah, because it's a bakery and it's yeah. an industrial bakery. Yeah, it's a big, big place. Yeah. But there, though, you know, being there, I was around so many sharp men in that bakery with and everybody it was over. It was so much man years of time in there. Guys in there, 25 years, 40 years, 20 years. And, you know, my little 13 years or whatever I was. So it was a lot of time in there. But it was so many brilliant minds. And the group of individuals that I surrounded myself with, these guys helped propel me to the person that I am now. And it's crazy. In that bakery, I learned so much. You know, I learned my work ethic. If you want better, you can have better. You can have anything if you want it, and and you got enough desire, and and you put the work in, you will get it. And um, what I end up doing was, I end up buying my daughter her first car from prison. I opened uh stock. Everybody was doing it. Everybody in there. This is the culture there, and these men took this initiative upon themselves. Hey, look, I'm gonna, I, when I come home, I'm gonna be better. Some guys had twenty years left. And some guys was in there for almost 20 years saving their money. So if you want better, you can have you can you can have it. And right, and that's obviously even with what a you limited did. amount of resources. Sure. And was that you know I, I know we're uh, talking about the book you're you're working on now, the pursuit of excellence, yes, which will yes. be out soonish in a couple right? months. Yes. Couple months. Um, but this is your fifth book. Yes. So did you write your first one when you were in prison? And what was your first book about? The first book I wrote was A Product of My Environment. I actually got it published while I was in prison. Okay. I I, I got to give big ups to Waylon Chambers. He believed in my vision, and, you know, he made it happen for me. You know, that's that's like a brother to me. Yeah, so— So that book kind of focused on, like, your upbringing? No, nah, it or? was a novel. It was an urban novel. It was, oh, okay. uh, it was very creative. I can't—man, it was really good. But, you know— so what was the synopsis then of the, the book then? It, it talked about the inner city life and how your environment can create situations that you would normally be in if this is one your environment. And, you know, it goes off into, uh, it's about the things I experienced, you know. It was a really well put together novel. And, you know, I, I did a part two to that. I did a couple more novels, but I evolved. And even though all the novels had a meaning behind it, a powerful message behind it, I had to evolve from that. That's part of that, you know, that addiction, that lifestyle. So I had to evolve from that. And this pursuit of excellence, I started this book, like, on my 14th, 15th year in my head. I started, I didn't know the name of it. I knew I was going to come up with something powerful. Your 14th or 15th year in, in prison. prison. Okay. No, maybe. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Maybe 4th okay. or 15th year in prison. So when it came time for you to come out, were you scared? Were you scared to come out? Were you scared to come back into the world thinking that you would succumb to the old lifestyle? That is a very good question. <laughs> Fear of, nah, excited, ready. I had anybody that know me, they they was like, you ready. If anybody going to make it, you're going to make it. But I did have doubts. I had doubts that I can reach my full potential. I, I had doubts because I didn't have many haters. 
Most people wanted me to do good. And I was like, can I live up to that expectation? The expectation I put on myself is really even heavier than that. But can I live up to me? But yeah, coming home from prison, I had almost $10,000. I had $1,000 in uh, General Electric. I had a bank account. I had bought my daughter stuff. I came out ready. I came out ready for the world. My body was together. My mind was together. And I thought I fixed a lot of my issues, my character flaws. Most of them I did. So getting out, so what was the year when you did get out? 2019. So 2019, you get out of prison. And where does life go from from there? Remember, I I said I was with my, uh, I lived with my auntie and uncle when I was younger. Yes. My uh, auntie allowed me to come parole to her house in Maywood. Okay. They embraced me with open arms. I had money, so I was okay. They didn't have to really give me anything. The issue with me was trying to get my license. And, you know, I don't want to really talk about this part because I don't want to talk about her like that. I don't want to be negative to her, you know. But I end up moving away uh, with someone. Quit my job and moved away. I put myself in a position where I, I lost everything that I had. And uh, I was trying to build a brand then, and, and it wasn't working. It you were was, trying to build copious lifestyle I was trying to build then. copious. I had all okay. these plans, but I still had that addiction of giving everything away. I realized that money that I had, I, I gave most of it away and didn't spend any, hardly any on me. And, um, you know, I did make a few bad uh, copious decisions and lost maybe $1,500 but, or 2000 That was about it. When I put myself in that position, I end up going back to that lifestyle, that old addiction. For two months, I did it. I hated it. I recall crying, Michelle, and she was she was right there by me. And I was just, I was saying, I I hate it. I hate doing this because the the addict was crying, asking for the drugs. I really didn't want to give it to her because I gave up stuff before, and. While she waiting out there, I'm just, I'm, I'm like, man, I don't want this. I was in tears. I ended up giving it to her. But see, that's what my mind was. I didn't want this. I had no plans on going back. But I ended up getting caught two months later. So you get caught, and then what happens? This was two months after you got out? No, or, no 11 two, months. Oh, 11 months. So okay. So the process of me moving. Move it. It was two months after you moved. Up. Okay. Okay. No, not two months after I moved, but two months after I moved back to Kankakee. Oh, okay. Because I wasn't in Kankakee. And okay. I really didn't want to come back to Kankakee, you know. But I came back to Kankakee two months and put myself—and that was the that was the hardest. That was the hardest thing ever to deal with. I was in tears. I was embarrassed, ashamed. I let my kids down. I let—I let—, I let me down. And I'm like, man. So at that point, you're thinking, I got to find something else. So what did you find? What did you do? Man, I, I, I tightened up my boots. I figured it out. And that's when the rest of excellence and everything you do came about. Okay. So, you know, everything that I experienced, it, it made me stronger. And I'm experiencing so much more now. And, and the beauty of it is, I've been blessed with so many great people around me. Jeff Davis helped me in so many ways. Uh, you know, you got Dan Grant. You got uh, uh, Andrew Eggleston. You know, my brother, actually my brother, my, my youngest brother helped me through the first beginning of everything. So, but yeah, you know, Free the Guys, Day Brands, uh, uh, Apply Pressure, Fly Above It. You know, these guys, we come together as brothers and they and we motivate one another and you know that's why I'm able to sit right here today and talk to you about copious lifestyle the pursuit of excellence you know yeah and and I kind of want to learn more about copious lifestyle and I I guess it, it it aligns right with your book of pursuing excellence right i mean it's um, it's a practice behavior uh being excellent in everything you do it's not perfect it's just trying to be the best you possible when you see things that's wrong with you, you try to work on them and fix them. You're not looking for blame. You're just focusing on trying to be the best you possible. And if it's something that you practice every day, 
It becomes your lifestyle. And that's what it is. Cope is lifestyle. And with my brand, I, I try to have quality. Everything should be the, the best you can do or, or be. So, yeah, that's, that's what copious is. You know, that's what it means. And I try to live that every day. You know, we fall short, but you fix those little things. You say, okay, why I didn't do what I was supposed to do today? What's the reason? So you identify those things and you work on them. Yes, absolutely. And one little thing at a time, you can't do it all. And I know part of Copious Lifestyle too, and, and obviously just your lifestyle now, kind of being reborn is helping the younger generation, helping the kids, right? How do you help mentor kids? You know, Jeff Davis, he had brought me in you know, because this is what he was doing. He was coaching and, uh, you know, mentoring kids, doing a Man Up event, the dad program, those things. And um, this is what I've always done anyway. We haven't went into how I always would help people around the oh, community. Yeah. Yeah. But this is who I've always been. So this is perfect for me. And, you know, I got information that I could share and hopefully it could help somebody else. So what we do is when we when we see a child that need help or a young teenager that's going through things that we experience, we try to meet them where they are, understand them. No matter what you do or who you're dealing with, the first thing you need is an understanding. So we try to understand the child or the teenager. And then we know and because we got a group of men with all different attributes and we figure out what's best, who best to suit this individual. And we go from there. Yeah, because obviously your experience is a little different than Derek Grant's or Jeff Davis or everyone's story is a little bit different. But the fact that all of you combined have gone through a lot of these similar things that kids, unfortunately, continue to go through. It's good that we have you in our community because out of anyone, you would be the ones to be able to identify what these kids are actually going through, even though they haven't said one single word about it, you can just kind of tell because you yourself have been there and you can see those red flags popping up. You're like, this reminds me of when I was eight and I remember this and this thing happening to me. And I can kind of see that happening with this kid right now. So, you know, you talk about getting down on their level, but, I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> you, um, you find out what they like, what their uh, experiences are. You find out uh, what their they dreams are, what they dislike. And then we, when we break that down, we figure out, okay, uh, Jeff may be good with him. Andrew may be good with him. Oh, I think Dre, uh, you know, uh, Derek, whoever, whoever uh, we think fit for him after we, we do our profile on this guy, you know. But the end goal is to figure out ways to reach him, whether we have to take them out of their environment or communicate with their parents and try to, you know, reach them that way. And, and we genuine. We don't. We not trying to. We not doing this for no money. I don't get paid for donating a hundred shirts. I don't get. I, you know, it's it's. I want to see kids do better because we struggle. We struggle. A lot of us. A lot of people that I grew up with. And the main thing I want people to know, even grown ups, once you get to know who you are, the whole world will open up to you. That don't mean you're disciplined enough to change, but you will identify those things that you're doing and then you're accountable for them. You know, or you're going to be held accountable or you take accountability for them. If you want to do better, you accept accountability and you work on all those little things. And my goal right now is to try to figure out how we can get kids to know who they are, even at they tender age. You know, so they won't be so impressionable and vacillate every with every fad. Because now look at it. The was was trending is killing. It didn't escalated to this. You know, all those things that was moving up to this now is to the ultimate. I kill you, I'm revered. I could be the dirtiest, the brokest, the grimiest, but if I kill you, I'm I'm kinda looking like a star. I, I could be a person that don't even like myself, but if I kill somebody, this is what the kids think is important. And 
I see them, though. I see the 18-year-olds. I saw them in prison. I saw the 18-year-olds, and I saw the 60-year-olds. The only difference is the age, because one has lived in there since he was 18. Right, yeah. You know, he was that vibrant dude with all the girls, with all the money. You know, with probably a, a, a got a, a nice position in the organization. All of those things that you look at and think is something you should want to do. And that's him in the infirmary, 60 years old on dialysis. He didn't spend his last 30 years or so trying to figure out how to get out. And 18, he was trying to figure out how to get in. So when you see that, when you experience that, and you know that could be you, and you know that's your friends, some of your friends, you want that to change. Because every day, honestly, every day I wake up, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for freedom. I'm grateful for family. And I'm grateful that nobody has died. You know, because I don't, you know, you know, it's just, so our goal is to definitely do that. And Everybody know I'm not perfect. I didn't. I went through so much. I done made so many mistakes over and over. I done had friends look at me like, man, come on, man. And I got to accept it. And, you know, and I do want to give another, uh, I, I, this guy I respect highly because he was there through it all. 17 years he was there through my whole incarceration. He always pushed me, motivated me. Just like the, he the reason I surround myself with certain men now. Lincoln Lee, got it. Man, he he the reason I wrote a book. He he actually taught me how to write books. Not, yeah, he taught me how to write books. He had, I, I had sent him a, uh, I thought I knew what I was doing on my first book. I wrote a, uh, some stuff out and sent it to him. He sent it back with a, because at this time, he had already had five books published. Oh, okay. So I'm looking at this stuff. I was so discouraged. <laughs> but I had knew myself at that time, so I knew how to fight through that. Now, I know another thing that I was curious is your view on women. You have a certain view on women I know that you wanted to share. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, women... I watch women. I watch my mother. I watch my grandmother, my auntie. I watched so many mothers carry the load of the whole household. If she had to put the house itself on her back, she probably a try. And you know, I watched it so, and I thought about it. I'm like, these creatures are so powerful. And then I started measuring it up to the men that I've seen and been around and then throughout history. And I'm start thinking like, whoa, why was women treated like slaves in a sense? They had a little more privileges. And I always thought about it. For years I studied that, studied women. And then I realized, okay, when you deny somebody something or you try to hold them back from being something, you're afraid of what they can become. My my beliefs, and I go back to Women had to fight for voting, for rights to vote. The man said, hey, look, this is what you're supposed to do and be, and you stick to it. Don't try to argue with that. I know what's right for you. And women had to just to fight for the basic stuff that men had. Why? What makes you think you a superior being? So I started seeing that, and then I started seeing women get strong and be like, hey, look, I can do all of this. I can I can take care of all your needs. I can take care of the kids. I can take care of the house. I can work and I can do everything else. Just give me the opportunity. And you know, they they fought and they fought to do that. And then I watched, it was an era, during the crack era, how the woman, the black woman, had to be superwoman and carry the whole household, the husband was on drugs or the, the boyfriend was on drugs in jail or not there. And she just carried the load. And I'm seeing this over and over. I'm like, this woman, I'm like, put that, put a man in that position. Put the average man in that position. You got, put the average man, he's not going to be able to take care of no four or five kids. Oh, no. <laughs> for one, he can't have kids. It can't, his body, no. we can't have him. Yeah. We're not that strong. And that's why I think women are the most powerful as beings on this earth. And I wanted them to know that, hey, I talked to my daughters, Danasia, Danasia Hampton and Dalisa Hampton. You are princesses. 
daughters of queens. Y'all can be whatever y'all want to be because y'all the most powerful being on this earth. That's what I truly believe. And and that's based off everything I've seen. I mean, seeing your your mother go through what she went through, I mean, is just, I'm sure that's a big part of where that comes from. That definitely. And, you know, and then, you know, watching my auntie as well. This woman was so strong. She, you know, her her three kids, great, all of them. I seen her through the same environment. She made it happen. She struggled through the same projects we came from, and she made sure that they didn't go through that. So you see strong women like that. You rally behind women, and then they and they carrying their kids. And then you got kids that want to get off into the streets, and they still carrying them. They give so much to the point that they can't do nothing for them. You know, they still trying to fight for equal, equal pay. Yes. Come yes. on, it's 2000 and almost 2023. Y'all don't identi- y'all can't identify these women as what they are. But yeah, that's that's basically what I wanted to touch on with women. Yeah. I'm sure you think about your mom every day and all the things she did for you up against she was up against the world. DeMarco, you should be so proud of yourself that you have come out on the other side and have done better than your father and righted the wrongs for yourself. And to come out through that, I, I can't imagine, just because I've never been through that myself. But by golly, you should be so proud of yourself. I can only imagine, at least I hope you are, for how far you have come to see your shortcomings mm-hmm. and to address them because to that you know just admitting shortcomings is the hardest thing to do i know sometimes it takes me a while you know sometimes i will i will react a little too quickly to like my girlfriend for instance and then after i say the thing that i said to her i'm like oh my gosh, did I really just say that to her just now? And, you know, I have to to get out the words that are, you know, I have to apologize. Mm-hmm. And I feel so silly because I can't believe I just did that. Like, but it, it, it just takes a lot of guts. Yeah, because, you, you know, I asked the kids like this. We was talking to uh, two youngsters today. They know who they are, you know, 11 years old twins. Uh, I was telling them, hey, look, you can get it now. Or you can go through what I went through. I'm like, man. But you know, what you were saying, uh, being proud, I I feel like this. I feel like Kobe and that game, uh, I think I forgot what game was. It it was when he was on a uh, podium and they said, you should feel good about winning this game. He said, the job is not finished. I understood it. And I feel that way. My job is not finished. I have so much to do. And I haven't even tapped into everything with brothers like Jeff, you know, the resources are there. It's just crazy. But I, I really want to, uh, another person I want to uh, give a lot of props to, man, because I really I really appreciate him as a person. Jim Rowe is is one of the greatest human beings I've met, and, and people don't even know that. People that don't know him, haven't even met him, just will assume he's just this prosecutor that's trying to lock everybody up. And I promise you, you could take 50 people in a community and you could put all of the things that they've done and probably don't even add up to the things that he has done or want to do. So I just love great people and I do surround myself with good people. And I'm one of those guys. I try to be the best version of myself. And sometimes I, I fall short, you know, even in relationships. But my intentions are always to not hurt anybody, to try to be right, you know. And and my intentions, see, intentions is everything. My intentions with this podcast is to not glorify the drug life because, to be honest, I know what it is. It, it's, it's not, it's the hardest money you can make. People think it's easy. It's, it's fast, but it's not easy because too many things come with it. I truly believe that it's a lazy man way out. Once you understood that, nowadays, early on, 
a lot of people had to do what they had to do to get in a position they get in because a lot of doors weren't open. I don't, I can't blame nobody. My success and my failure lies with me. James Allen said in his book, you are responsible for the good and bad in your life. So when you're not doing right, look at you first. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's, a, that's a real great uh, principle to follow. It's I'm, in my book. I, that's the first okay. chapter in my book, getting to know yourself. The second chapter is decision and choices. And, and it, go, it get better and better. Okay. So d- you don't have an exact release date yet for the new book, do I'm you? I'm still, uh, every day I'm in a lab typing it up, you okay. know, fixing things. Yeah, it'll be out uh, real soon in a couple months. And, of course, people can go to, is it mycopiouslifestyle.com? The copious. Or it's uh, the yeah, copious. www.thecopiouslifestyle.com. Okay. Yeah. So will it be for sale there when it is officially out? Absolutely. Everything okay. going to fall under the copious umbrella. Okay, wonderful. And uh, I know you're you're on uh, social media too, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. people can follow. People can, yeah. <clears throat> you know, they can follow. They can Facebook page. You know my name, DeMarco Hampton. It's the one with the copious shirt on there. Yeah. You know, it is fresh. I, I, I try to stay fresh and uh, I want people to, hey, come shop with me. The quality is good. And yeah, I was going to excellence. thank you, by the way, for you did. He uh, made a, a very special hoodie for me as well. What color? I'm colorblind, by the way. So I can't tell exactly what color this is. Is it like a cream color? It's like a tannish cream. Tan, okay, so I, I can't I can't see. Some colors beige, I can't like see. like a tannish beige. Yeah, because like. And green like, and white. Like the color you're wearing now, it's either yellow or a and like a neon green but yeah, i'm not like really canary. sure it's that canary yellow and see, see yeah, yeah. i i could have came in here and said oh that's green <laughs> but it's not it's canary yellow so yeah. and this is super soft it's like a it's almost like a fleece blend is. or is it, it fle- is. it's fleece on and the inside honestly yeah. that is the best material i've ran across well, thank you so much for the, i'm going to wear this hoodie very proudly yeah. especially now that i know uh, the whole story yeah. behind it. So thank you for dropping that yeah. off. And, and yeah, anyone can uh, support Copious Lifestyle and they can order directly through the copiouslifestyle.com. And it's copious with a K, Absolutely. by the way, just to throw that out there. And, and I will have, yeah. if you look in the description of this episode, I will have the the direct link to the website that you okay. can click on yes. that people can Appreciate check it out. That. What I want people to understand, when you putting on copious sweatsuit or a hoodie or a hat, you not represent me. You represent you. You represent the lifestyle that you're striving for. That's what it's about. You want to pursue excellence every day. You want to try to get better every day. And, and another thing, I took things from a lot of different people, but I'm going to use three major people. Kobe Bryant. We born the same day and we the same age. So it was, Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's Kobe cool. Kobe Bryant, Mayweather. I'm going to just use those two. Mayweather, his ability to adjust and adapt to anything is what propelled him to the guy that he is. And Kobe, his discipline and his attention to detail and his desire to never let no one outwork him, those things I'm trying to incorporate into my life. And I know if I get that, nothing will be able to stop me. And that's part of how Kobe's was created too, putting those guys into that thought. I look at certain people and I look for attributes that that set them apart. And with him, to me, his ability to adjust and adapt. If you can adjust and adapt to anything, greatness is your destination. And with Kobe, and if you put that ability with that and a lot more other, man. (laughs) So that's what I'm trying to incorporate and adopt as my own. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that you want to get out there? I know well, we, can... <laughs> we got we got events coming up soon. Uh, oh early yeah, next okay. Year. We'll we'll talk about those further through the social media. Okay, sites. sure. But yeah, well, we keep to... yeah. Follow yeah. Follow copious the the copious lifestyle on on uh, social media. You can stay up to date on those things. Mm-hmm. Actually, one thing I'm curious about: How did you and Jeff Davis meet? Mm. That's what I want to know. Perry Lee, really? Perry Lee, Perry Lee, and I met when I uh, moved to Kankakee in second grade. We had a fight. Perry Lee was, he had the whole class in awe. 
So, you know, I met him uh, through Perry We fought, and after that, me and Perry became best friends. Me and uh, a few of my friends, we would come out to West Harbor where they live. And, you know, Perry was, he influenced really, to me, the whole harbor. He was the inside to the outside. You know what I mean? So we would come around there. We would walk miles to visit him. And that's his little brother. Yeah. And that's his little brother. And I would spend a night at their house. Him and Diane, his sister's another power. I, I watched that woman. That woman is powerful. You probably need to interview her. She, <laughs> okay. She's tough. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I stayed with them, you know. They mother uh, let me stay with them. Maddie, love Maddie, Mama Maddie. Yeah, so that's how I met him, and I reconnected with him uh, when uh, Andrew Eggleston was doing a co-drive, you know, uh, on social media. And then from then, you know, it, it's been like I'm with my little brother all the time. Okay, that's you know? awesome. Another question for you. What what are some things that people can do to help the youth in our area, the kids in our area? What are some things that that we can do? Right now, the kids are being indoctrinated with the music. We always have. I didn't believe it then, but I understand it now. But we're being indoctrinated by the music. I think if we can change the trend, I think, uh, and especially the people that uh, have a voice, the, the rappers, the ones that they listen to and try to emulate, they are the ones, they ha also, they have a lot of power. If, if you got 10 of the top rappers saying, we going back to the money. We ain't killing no more. I believe if they pump this, it's turning to a mantra. Hopefully, I don't know, but I know that's how it started. You talking about doing some stuff and, you know, it reverberated throughout the country. I believe that's one way. And I believe if everybody put their feet on the ground and grab one child, you know, I think it'll make a difference. You, you can't look at the, the mountain of stuff that need to be done. You could just look what's in front of you and take one step at a time. Yes, that's what I always say. It's it's the people you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, whether they're strangers or people you're very familiar with, it's how we interact with them on a daily basis. That's how we can make the difference. DeMarco, this has been an honor. Thank you so much. It's been great. I'm, I appreciate it. I'm glad. I'm glad you got me here. Yeah, and thank you so much for the hoodie. And oh, yeah. everyone needs to go get one. So yeah, <laughs> if you don't got one, you're missing out. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I agree, man. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Bob. That concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Karen Bishop, Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vigelli, Eric Olson, Carl Earps, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Dreenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. Now, to become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com, click on the patron tab, and if you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode. There's also other rewards like early access to new episodes or extended versions of episodes, uh, discounts on upcoming special events if we have any currently we don't but there's other uh rewards uh included monthly so your monthly pledge is truly appreciated our goal right now is to reach 400 per month and right now we're about halfway from reaching that goal so please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com our theme song is written and performed by lupe carroll and recorded by daniel bishop this river carries on